you brought a Bible, would you open it to 2 Samuel chapter 16? We'll get there in just a minute. Boy, it's, it's nearly 50 years now. Um, was tonight, 1972. A White House aide named Charles Colson was sitting with President Richard Nixon, uh, savoring what was the greatest and largest re-election victory for any sitting president to that date. Although Mr. Nixon would be driven from office within two years, that night, it was a singular triumph for him. He had, he had scored a singular triumph. The people gave him an enormous vote of confidence, and he celebrated at the height of his power. In his memoir, Born Again, Colson, who would come to know the Lord within a year of that time, he was bewildered because although Nixon's challenger, Senator George McGovern, had conceded, hours earlier conceded this lopsided election, there was no point in dragging it out, Nixon hesitated to write up the traditional victor's response. And the victor's response was almost always bland, but gracious. Nixon hesitated, and uh, it was odd to Colson because certainly winning 49 to 50 states would allow Nixon to let bygones be bygones. But Nixon balked. He said, how can I say something nice about me after he kept comparing me to Hitler? Colson remembered it this way, that he could show no charity in this the hour of his greatest victory dramatized the paradox of Richard Nixon. The 1960 evidence suggested that the cliffhanger election had been stolen from him. That was Nixon's first try at the presidency. Demand a recount, his aides urged, but Nixon had refused. It would create uncertainty, be bad for the country, and it was his job to help unite the electorate behind the man who defeated him. Noble in defeat, he was now without grace in victory. One of the reasons historians and journalists are even to this day so fascinated by this 37th president was his complicated dual personality. He was the son of pacifist Quakers who at the same time had really no qualms about dropping 110 tons of bombs on Cambodia in his first year alone. He was so polite to secretaries that he wouldn't even point out a typo. He would actually redictate a letter with the troublesome word eliminated so she wouldn't know that she made a mistake. And yet he would unleash or plan to unleash federal agencies against a growing list of his enemies. So we can see, oh, oh, I forgot the third thing about him. He was obsessed with a public posture of dignity, so much so that he would only be photographed walking on the beach wearing a business suit in wingtip shoes. And yet when he buried his wife, he was openly and unashamedly bawling like a baby. There was this, this Jekyll and Hyde side to Nixon. And again, it, it, it fascinated people who studied him. And uh, it also reveals something. It reveals something. Our scripture reading this morning represents both sides of that human contradiction. But it uses three people to reveal it. And before we're done, I hope that you'll see that political idols, more often than not, pull us to that dark, grumbling, unforgiving side of the inconsistency, threatening not only the relationships with family and friends and fellow citizens, but threatening the peace and purity of the church, the church, and this church. 
Again, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 16, verses 5 through 13. Would you stand, if you're able, in, out of respect for these, the very words of God? As King David approached Bahurim, a man from the same clan as Saul's family came out from there. His name was Shimei, son of Gera, and he cursed as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, though all the troops and the special guard were on David's right and left. As he cursed, Shimei said, get out, get out, you murderer, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has given you the kingdom into the hands of your son Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a murderer. Then Abishai, son of Zeruiah, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. But the king said, what does this have to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord said to him, curse David, who can ask why you do this? David then said to Abishai and all his officials, my son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more then this Benjamite? Leave him alone, let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore to me the covenant blessing instead of his curse today. So David and his men continued along the road while Shimei was going along the hillside opposite him, cursing as he went and throwing stones at him and showering him with dirt. Let's pray. God of our fathers, we ask for your wisdom this morning. Our national forebears referred to you as the author of liberty. And from Israel in Egypt to this very day, you release enslaved souls from all manner of bondage. Help us to remember that whatever freedom we gain in this life is but a pale image of the liberty Jesus has purchased for us for the eternities. Bring a renewed conviction that the world, the flesh, and the devil will offer an independence, but it's a fake independence, and they will instead seek to bind our souls. Above all, please sow unity among us with all the diverse backgrounds and experiences and ideas we bring to each other Remind us that we are one in Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Now, many know uh, that the household of David, a polygamist, uh, it was, well, let's put it this way. Put, to put it kindly, it had some dirty laundry, and we're not going to air that dirty laundry today. Let's just say that the king became the target of his son, who decided to seize the throne for himself beating a hasty, a strategic retreat, David fled from Jerusalem in order to regroup. His encounter with Shimei is instructive because it highlights the effects of political idolatry and also makes clear what the right response should be. Shimei, we're told, is a relative of David's predecessor, old King Saul, from the tribe of Benjamin. We see from these verses that trolling did not begin with social media. Shimei makes it a point to harass and disrespect David and his officials with rock throwing, dirt throwing, and insults. Shimei personifies political idolatry in the form of tribalism. Shimei despises David and he takes grim satisfaction at the king's troubles. What does he say? He says, the Lord has repaid you. In other words, you've had this coming to you, David, for a long time. You deserve every ounce of misery that you are suffering now. 
Shimei's behavior is designed to rub salt in David's wound. Why? Because he believes that David usurped King Saul's throne, seizing it immorally and unlawfully from Saul's line of descendants. Scripture, by contrast, tells us that Saul made his own bed. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. The prophet tells the old king, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Now, it's probably doubtful that old King Saul went back to his Benjamite brothers and sisters and bragged about being removed, about having his royal line removed because of disobedience. So Shimei may very well have grown up under the impression that Saul was a faithful king. A myth mythological impression, actually. It was a lie. Shimei put his trust in tribal folklore and grew to hate David without cause. He chose to believe that the deaths of two of Saul's sons were scripted, produced, and directed by David, when actually they were accomplished against David's wishes. Political idolaters are very, well, very quick to believe the worst about their opponents, and they don't need a lot of confirmation. The problem is the most dastardly deeds of history were based on untruths untruths about religion, untruths about race, untruths mostly about motives. In 1962, Barbara Tuckman wrote what is even today considered among the most authoritative books on World War I called The Guns of August. The sobering insight to come out of this book is that nobody wanted that war, nobody. It turns out that each side's negotiators misread the other's intentions. And the first shot fired was thought to be in self-defense. The result, 20 million dead and 21 million more wounded, all because the leaders were ignorant of the truth. Tuckman wrote that uninformed interpretation of the events was, was, it was gaining a momentum, a, a, a political momentum that overrode the suspicions of those who would actually have to do the fighting. She said the impetus, the momentum, of existing plans is always stronger than the impulse to change. In David, Shimei sees a man on the run. He views Absalom's star as rising. He's a never-Davider who's confident that momentum is with him and he stands on the right side of history. Brothers and sisters, if you hear politicians telling you you're on the right side of history, run. It's not the right side of history we want to be on. We want to be on the right side when history ends. World history and your history and my history. That's what matters. So Shimei, he's consumed by a bitter idol that refused to recognize David's legitimacy, that stoked glee at David's pain and heartache, and that convinced Shimei of his own vindication. King David reached a level of spiritual maturity that stands in stark relief against Shimei. He doesn't consider the abusive reproach of Shimei as out of bounds. He recognizes his own sinfulness. He believes the whole episode can very well be disciplined from the Lord. And he sees the value of that discipline. We don't know if uh, David wrote Psalm 94, but he clearly gets verses 12 and 13. Blessed is the one you discipline, Lord, the one you teach from your law to grant him relief from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. Unlike Shimei, David 
trusts that his troubles will ultimately redound to his benefit because he believes in the goodness and sovereignty of God. Look again at, a verse, at the verse 12 of our passage this morning. He said, it may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore to me his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. Shimei is convinced that his tribe's loss of the throne isn't God's discipline, but it's a cruel and cosmic injustice that can only begin to be remedied by David's defeat. And that's where political idolatry, tribalism, or some other form of partisanship inevitably leads when it is indulged. The idol always wants blood. David could have seen this idolatry in Shimei, his nemesis, but he definitely saw it in a friend, Abishai. Abishai was actually a relative of David. His loyalty to the king was unimpeachable. And as we see, he had little tolerance for anyone who would disrespect his royal uncle. Here's the irony, however. His thinking was more in tune with Shimei's than David's. He saw a conflict, and instead of understanding it, instead of trying to resolve it, he wanted to cancel it. Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. Like Shimei, Abishai was concerned first with power dynamics, with David's prestige. Shimei must be dispatched ruthlessly, or else Absalom will grow in the esteem at David's expense. Or so Abishai thought, in true Shimei-like fashion. Now beheading is and was a long-standing form of punishment in the Middle East and around the world. More than one Shakespearean king has shouted off with his head when his displeasure was kindled. Lewis Carroll, centuries later, would give us the character of the Queen of Hearts in Alice in Wonderland, whose consistent refrain was, off with their heads. In real life, the French Revolution made head-offing into an art form, especially during the period known as the Reign of Terror. This included a six-week stretch when the Jacobin party lobbed off 30 heads a day, <clears throat> nearly 1,400 in total, in the dreaded guillotine. The Jacobins were, not, were no longer killing monarchists. They were killing their own revolutionary allies who dared to think just a little bit differently from them. The terror, as it was known, reflected where a politics-first value system can bring a nation to a glorification of bloody ruthlessness in service to the cause, the cause with a capital C. Is that in the right direction? Yes, capital C. <clears throat> the only way to foster ideological purity is to eliminate the impure influences. For the cause, there can be no boundary. There can be no buffer. There can be no check or balance until a perfect society is achieved. This is when politics becomes lord and master, as it was to Shimei and Abishai. Shimei seeking to cancel David by delegitimizing him, Abishai seeking to cancel Shimei by decapitating him. David rebuked his ally when he argued for a tactical political strike without considering the purposes of God. Against Shimei, however, David maintained silence. Does that sound familiar? In the very same way, as our savior was nearing his time to give up his life for sinners, he needed to correct a friend whose sole concern was his physical survival. From Matthew chapter 16, verse 23, Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Later, Jesus himself would be silent in the face of his tormentors. 
To politics first thinkers, Jesus had a golden opportunity. I'm sorry, Jesus lost a golden opportunity because he surrendered the narrative, which would now be that Jesus was not who he said he was. Hashtag fraud. Hashtag save yourself. No idol is better able to conflate worldly interest with divine calling, with divine uh, uh, will. Only political idols, they're the best at that. We talk a lot about idols around here because they're just so gosh darn irresistible. But really, you might push back against me and you might ask, what is the problem? What's the matter with, with having strong political views? It's better than apathy, right? Shouldn't we be informed citizens, active in our communities and countries? If we're indeed for biblical justice, as we all say we are, isn't it required that we take our part in electing the leaders we have and implementing the policies they advocate? Yes to all of that. Yes, indeed. The problem with political idols is that they demand your first loyalty. Once ensnared by their self-professed virtue and nobility, their victims invest more and more thought and more emotion in that capital C cause. The cause will tell you what to watch, what to read, what to listen to. And above all, the cause will tell you who to hate. And what do you do if you defy the cause's dictates? You're a traitor. You're a traitor who's gonna give everything away to the fascists or the communists or the elitists or the fanatics or the parasites, or the deplorables. I use the word invest because idols, unlike God, have only the power we give them. So how, how do we discern these idols? How do we know when we're being good citizens on the one hand, and when our civic enthusiasm hmm, strays into dangerous spiritual waters? I was really intrigued this past summer by a book I read called Political Visions and Illusions. It's by David Coises, a Canadian theologian. Professor Coises uh, argues that all political ideologies are religious. All political ideologies are religious at their very core. And he gives us five characteristics that mark them. I'm gonna run through these fairly quickly, but I just wanna give you a heads up that in March, we are going to offer an ACE class that goes into more depth and we'll also talk about how we negotiate political differences within the church. The first mark of a political idol is that adhering to them ultimately leads to breaking the first commandment. First commandment for Exodus 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. In other words, there comes a point where you can only serve one or the other. The idol will not allow any other, and God would not allow it either. Second point, idols point to human creations as sources of salvation. That could be anything, but it's human creation. It's, it, could, it could be a government agency. It could be a piece of legislation. It could be the Constitution. It could be a private enterprise, but they point to it as a source of salvation. Salvation from what? That's the third point. The evil thing from which we are saved is not sin itself, but a selective manifestation of it. How many politicians inveigh against greed? How many politicians inveigh against racism or poverty? You can find condemnations of all those things in scripture, but they don't inveigh against sin. 
James chapter 2, verse 10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. That is not a good political message. That won't sell. The fourth mark is that ideologies view the world as belonging to humans. And all you have to do is uh, just uh, double-check that against Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world, and all who live in it. And finally, ideology, the fifth mark of ideologies is that goals supplant principles. That is, the ends justify the means. True ideologues tolerate and even promote a whole bunch of self-contradictory practices, believing that eventually, that ultimately, they'll get to the point of peace, prosperity, justice, whatever particular virtue they are selling. Hebrews 12 encourages us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Ideologies tell us to make the world our focus. The problem is that the world is at war with God. And even moreover, the world is at war with itself. And don't think that the church is immune to that war. It's not. The collateral damage has already begun. <clears throat> Henry Adams, he's a, he was a, a famous diplomat. He descended from two presidents and he was a very uh, esteemed academic historian. He called politics the systematic organization of hatreds. Wow. Now he said that in the, 19, the late 19th century. So what are the scholars saying today? In, in, in a 2018 study, two Stanford University political scientists, Shanto Iyengar and Marsha Krupenkin, said that the 21st century was proving to be, and I quote, an acute era of polarization where partisans mild dislike for their opponents has been transformed into a deeper form of animus, close quote. No doubt these partisans blame each other for the animus, never themselves. The fact is that they marinate in politics. They marinate in it and it makes like you're marinating in Tabasco sauce. It makes your your feelings red hot, saltier, and more vulgar. Jesus, who reconciles vulgar sinners to a pure and holy and just God, he told his intimates in uh, Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 through 28, he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and listen to this, to give his life as a ransom for many. He told that to them after the mother of James and John played a little politics herself. He told them that by worldly political standards, he was about to go down to a humiliating and deadly defeat, just as Peter had feared for him. If you consider yourself a partisan, can you fathom can you fathom that your side losing in humiliating fashion would be a good thing? It might very well be the will of God, just like David bearing the abuse of Shimei and not taking vengeance. Can you imagine that there's profound purpose in an electorate rejecting your candidate or your platform? Does that even seem possible to you? Is your reaction one of faith that God's rule is a monarchy and he will install whom he will install? Or is it bitter despondency, pouting, or gloating when you win? Among Jesus' audience when he said those words were Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. These two came from opposite poles, one denying the legitimacy of Caesar's government and the other doing that government's bidding. 
Jesus brought both men to his side. Now, this is not in the Bible, but I like to think that he, when he sent them out two by two in Luke 10, that he paired those two disciples together. And as they set out over, you know, how, how, whatever the distance was, when they first set out, they were kind of wary of each other, keeping a distance, not talking very much, maybe grunting here and there. Then the two men did life together. They healed people together, delivered people from demons in Jesus' name, and they watched the miraculous results. And I also like to think that on the way back, on their way back to their Lord, they were singing hymns, had their arms slung around one another, as giddy as drunks. No, it's not in the scripture, but it is so possible. The love and power of Jesus dwarfs political identity. It dwarfs it. Today at the United States, there's an awful demographic phenomenon happening. It's called the big sort. People are moving away from politically diverse neighborhoods to those that are more politically homogenous. In their new environment, they will never have to look at a MAGA sign on the one hand or a coexist bumper sticker on the other. They can spout partisan bromides to their neighbors without ever getting any pushback at all. And they'll stop doing life together. They'll stop empathizing with each other and suffering together. Isolated from one another, they'll stiffen in their convictions. And their contempt for the other side will only grow. They'll consider one another as threats to the republic in need of cancellation, off with their heads. I want to close with another chapter in Chuck Colson's life. He had left the Nixon administration and was practicing law a few months after that 1972 election night. He was under investigation for Watergate crimes when an old friend and client led him to Christ. He was a thoroughly changed man, and a Christian friend in D.C. decided that he should get together with the United States Senator from Iowa named Harold Hughes. Years before, the Lord had rescued Hughes from alcoholism, and he subsequently, uh, Hughes did, subsequently started a, a trucking company. He became governor of that state and then the U.S. Senator. Philosophically, he was a liberal's liberal. He was anti-Vietnam War, pro-generous welfare benefits, and sympathetic to those accused of crimes. He represented everything the Nixon administration was against. He denounced them, and they denounced him in no uncertain terms. Neither man wanted to go to dinner that night, but their mutual friend convinced each one that he was resisting the Lord's will. So they gave in, they met, they met one another as brothers, and over the subsequent weeks and months, they participated together in prayer and Bible study, and they confided in one another. Hughes would later share these words with a prayer breakfast group. He told them, I learned how wrong it is to hate. For years, there were men toward whom I felt consuming bitterness. I was hurting them. I wasn't hurting them, only myself. By hating, I was shutting Christ's love out of my life. One of the men I hated most was Chuck Colson. But now that we share a commitment together in Christ, I love him as my brother. I would trust him with my life, my family, and everything I have. Wow. Now, we don't know if Simon the Zealot or Matthew the tax collector repudiated their own political views after coming to Jesus. They may have held some form of them for the rest of their lives. We do know that about Colson and Hughes. He was, Colson was a conservative. Hughes was a liberal 
for the rest of their days on this earth, but it didn't really matter. That's the power of God in Jesus Christ, as miraculous as the disciples' experiences in, in Luke 10. Hughes and Colson later appeared together in 1974 on 60 Minutes. Yes, there was a 60 Minutes back in 1974. And the host, Mike Wallace, was mystified throughout the whole interview, confessing that a faith that united two men like these made no sense to him. Why would it? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 reminds us that the message of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Friends, let's not allow the big sort to infect our church. In the life of any local church, somebody somewhere will find cause to be disgruntled and leave and search for a more accommodating congregation. We get that. But let's resolve here and now that we're a family that will not be rent apart over debatable issues that would rule us as idols. As I mentioned before, in March, we're going to uh, start a month-long ACE class going into a little more depth regarding the religious nature of ideologies and how to, uh, how to navigate political differences among us as believers. We've been called, everyone here, to serve one Lord, Jesus, by one faith, through one baptism that unites us as one body. For all of our differences, over masks and vaccines, over what's causing changes in climate on the earth, over racial injustice, or the size and scope of government. For all of our differences, we've been called to unity in Christ. How much more should we place kingdom interests over those that are, from an eternal perspective, momentary? Do we follow Shimei? Or Abishai? Or do we follow David and David's Lord? Let's pray. Jesus, you are our anchor, our fixed star, unaffected by false gods and idols. You call us to a plane that is unfamiliar to our worldly mindsets, above the muck and mire into which our sin natures love to descend. Inform our hearts by your Holy Spirit, of where we stand in relation to where you would have us be, and fill us with the will and the desire and the power to rise and conform to your image. Amen.